Welcome to the Top Business Leaders Podcast. You'll learn how successful people just like you have grown their businesses, expanded their influence, and made money by writing a book. On each episode, you'll learn the inside secrets to help you create a book that can serve as a powerful marketing tool to skyrocket your business. I'm your host, Dan Janelle. I help thought leaders, business executives, and entrepreneurs write their books. To find out more and to download our show notes, go to topbusinessleaders.com. Welcome to the Top Business Leaders Podcast. Hi, I'm Dan Janelle. I'm the author of 13 books, including Write Your Book in a Flash. Today, I'm meeting with Linda Henman, who has written books and has used books to help build her business. Welcome, Linda. Thank you, Dan. Linda, tell us a little bit about yourself. What's your story? Well, the first half of my adult life, I was an English and speech teacher. And I did that, and it was a very rewarding career at the time. And then I decided I wanted to go back to school to get a Ph.D. in organizational psychology. So I did that a little bit later in life. I didn't even start it until I was 43 years old. Then I was hired by a firm to put the organizational psychology Ph.D. to work, did some very interesting work with them, and then decided I'd like to go out on my own. So in 2004, I started my own business called Henman Performance Group, and I am very happy with uh, having my own business and being my own boss most days. Great. What kind of clients do you work with, and and how do you help them? I work with those in the C-suite, and I help them get decisions that they can't afford to get wrong. By that, I mean I work with boards to help them with CEO selection. I help uh, senior leadership teams with strategy, and I help both boards and senior leadership teams with mergers and acquisitions. So those are the three main areas where I help clients. You've also written a couple of books. How, when did, when, why did you decide to write a book? Actually, I've written seven. Oh, I'm yeah. sorry. <laughs> <laughs> the first one was a textbook because at the time I was teaching small group process, so I became uh, an author with an existing book called Small Group group Communication, and it's still in publication, and I get about a $15 royalty check every year or so. So It all adds up. It all adds up. But it helped me establish a name for myself in the publishing world. And then after I was working with the firm, I thought, what am I really good at? And at the time, I was working extensively with Emerson Emerson Electric, um, the speech teacher is not speaking very well today, helping their middle managers transition from solo performer to having direct report responsibilities. And I, so I wrote my first book, uh, first book on my own, called The Magnetic Boss. And I got about 500 of them delivered to me, and then I realized I didn't want to do that work anymore. I wanted to work with those in the C-suite. And about the same time that I got delivery on that book, I was hired by a board to do CEO selection for a large publicly traded company in St. Louis. And it went very well. And I decided I wish I had a book to hand to John. John Stroop is the guy's name who came into Belden to run their company. He's been a star ever since he was hired. He was very young. But he was only 38 when he got this job. And I recommended him against somebody who was much more experienced because I knew he would be a better candidate. But I wish at the time that I'd had a book to hand to John. And so I decided to write that book for the next time I did a CEO selection for somebody who was so young. And I called that landing in the executive chair. And I pictured John the whole time I was writing it. What does John need to learn about that? 
And then I decided that I needed to help people that, I, that weren't new to the job, that had been in the job for a long time. What did they need to know? Well, they needed to know how to challenge the ordinary. So I wrote that book. And then I was working with a construction company that is very uh, focused on collegiality and relationships and building rapport with their clients. And it's a, a big construction company in the Southwest. And they have trouble with tough calls because their, their driving force is their relationships. So we, without sacrificing that, how do you make tough calls? So I wrote that book for them, always with a client in mind. And then the last book that I wrote with Constance Derricks is called The Merger Mindset, How to Get It Right in the High-Stakes World of Mergers, Acquisitions, and Divestitures. So that one is just out, and I am now trying to build business helping companies with mergers and acquisitions. Excellent. And to uh, I'm glad you uh, hit on a key point there, which is one question that I get every time I do a seminar, which is, how do I know what to write about, and you clearly focused on your target reader, and specifically you focused on John and imagined what John wanted to know and what would help John. So I think it's a really good teaching point to think about focusing on that one person, and that way everything else falls into line. It does. And when I did Tough Calls, I focused on a guy named Tim. Tim was, a, was getting ready for promotion, and I was actually hired to help him get ready for his promotion. He had gone from an area manager in this construction company to a regional manager. And he was better than anybody at building relationships. But he had a little trouble with those tough calls. And so that's, I pictured him in every chapter, what do I need to tell Tim? That's fantastic, and I'm sure that will help a lot of people listening. So you have the book. How does it help you build your business? Well, I don't write books to sell books. I write books to sell business, as you just said. And the way it has helped me most is it has built my confidence. So when I hand somebody a book that says, I can help you with this, and here's a book, it is a credibility factor for them, but it's a confidence builder for me. And with every book launch, as we talk about what is this book about, who's it for, who's the target audience, why did you write it, all those questions that I'm sure you ask people when they are writing books and you're helping them with that, is once you get that really clear in your own head, and often it takes somebody else dragging it out of you to get those answers, but once you get it clear in your own head and you put it in writing in a book, you just show up differently. You sort of square your shoulders and hold your head high, and and you show up as the expert, not an expert, but the expert. I think that's a really important point because a lot of people don't write their books because they suffer from the imposter syndrome, and they think there's someone smarter or someone better who can do the book. How did you get over that, uh, that fear? I got rid of that pretty early on when I was working with uh, the firm where I was. And the reason it, I was sort of thrown into the deep end on mergers and acquisitions with them because John Tyson had just bought International Beef Products. And he came to our firm, and there were eight psychologists that worked directly with him and his leadership team to help them figure out what they wanted to do in the succession plan of how do we take all the officers from International Beef Products and Tyson Foods and make one company out of these two not completely different companies, but somewhat different companies. And so once I did that, I said to myself, 
You know, if you can do help, uh, I think at the time Tyson was $13 billion company. I think they're more like $30 billion now. If you can help a company like that, you can do just about anything that your clients bring you in terms of mergers and acquisitions. And so it's that sort of confidence and then putting in paper what we did there and uh, what was successful there and how I can help clients replicate. So people shouldn't sell themselves short. People have different accomplishments and different uh, things that they've achieved, and they shouldn't make light of that. They should really celebrate those victories and put those into the books and put those case histories into the books to prove their credibility to their audiences. Well, that's very important, Dan. And the other thing is to sit and ask yourself, and sometimes it helps to work with a mentor or coach or or, or a, a trusted advisor to talk about these things of saying, here's what I think I'm the expert on. How do you see me? Is that how you see me, and do you think it's right? And don't ask just anybody this question, by the way. (laughs) Ask somebody who knows you and knows your work. And when you start to think about it, you say, yeah, I don't know anybody else that knows more about this subject than I do. I don't know anybody else who is more of an expert on this topic than I am. So why shouldn't I be the one writing the book? And you, when you realize you're not an imposter, and in fact you're as good as most people, and you're better than most. Mm-hmm. And that pushes you into that confidence level. Did you work with the developmental editor or have any other kind of feedback when you wrote your book? I, writing comes very easy for me because I'm a former English teacher. But I did hire somebody to edit. And in fact, when Constance and I did the Merger Mindset, we hired Linda Popke, who's in Alan Weiss's community, to help us editing because we had two voices and two writing styles, and Linda helped us meld it into one. Now, of course, when you're commercially published, they will supply an editor. But it's been my experience that sometimes these editors are not as sharp as the editors that I have hired independently of them, such as Linda Popke, to help me with books. So uh, don't be shy about hi- if you need to have help in writing. And if, you, if writing doesn't come easily to you, which, let's face it, most technical experts don't have a writing background. They have a, writing, they have a background in whatever their expertise is, not in putting words on paper. So it helps to have somebody show you the way. How did you use the book to get new business? First of all, as soon as you get the book, you send it to everybody who's happy with you. <laughs> and so what I, in fact, I have these all addressed and ready for me to work on next week when I get back, because the, the merger mindset is just out, that I send two copies of the book to my current clients. And so if I were sending it to you, I'd say, Dan, um, thought of you when I was writing page 35, and then I put a little marker there, and then I say, I include this book, and I write to Dan, somebody who has the right mindset, and dated and signed Linda. But then I say, here's another copy for somebody that you know who might enjoy reading this or find this helpful. Another thing you can say is, I promise to always make any referral from you a top priority. So it encourages people to refer you. You, know, you, you probably ought to t- talk to Linda and Constance if you're going to do a M&A deal. Mm-hmm. Sure. Now, um, physically, is this a letter that you're hand-wrote? Is it typewritten? No, is hand, it- handwritten. Handwritten. People don't get handwritten notes anymore, so it sets you apart. And plus, I don't just send them out. I don't like cold call with books. I don't send them out to people who won't be receptive to receiving them. But, for example, I use a lot of examples 
from Emerson Electric because it's a St. Louis company. I use a lot, lot of examples from Enterprise Rent-A-Car. So, yes, I will send copies to the leadership. Of, uh, David Farr is the CEO that I put up, that we put in the book as somebody who really knows how to do mergers and acquisitions. So I will mark the pages and say, Dear David, uh, look at page 64. Thank you for offering such an excellent example of what M&A work should look like. Here's another copy for somebody who, that you might find it useful. Now, will that bring any work? I don't know. I haven't done it yet. But you know, you've got to do that sort of thing and give the book away. Don't worry about selling it. Don't do, for heaven's sakes, don't do back of the room sales uh, when you give a speech. Give it away. You can usually buy these books at discount from a commercial publisher, usually $10 or so. It is well worth it to spend $1,000 on books and give it to everybody in your audience. Perfect. Now, you have so much information, and you're an expert in so many areas. Did you find it difficult, or how did you—let me rephrase the question. How did you decide what information to include and what not to include, because you have so much information? You've got to picture your ideal reader. So what does John need to hear? John doesn't need to hear everything I need to say or have to say. Tim didn't need to read everything or every story. I focus on my ideal reader for whatever that book is. And so the, the next one I'll be working on has to do with the board mindset. So as I picture myself talking to a director on a publicly traded board, what does that director need to read in these 200 pages that will be critical to that person's success? And if it's not critical to success, or if it doesn't illuminate a point, or if it doesn't give a compelling example, leave it out. You've only got 200 pages. Uh, you, I love the fact you just brought up 200 pages because that was going to be my next question. How long do you think a book should be, and how many words would 200 pages be in your well, estimation? Well, your, your editor will tell you their maximum. So if once you get a publisher, and ideally you get a publisher before you finish the book, that hasn't ever been the case with me, but other people told me that's true. And they will give you so many thousand books, or so many thousand words per book or per chapter. And then I sit down with a blank piece of paper and I write out my 10 chapter headings. So what does John need to know in 10 chapters? What does Tim need to know in 10 chapters? What does this director need to know? And then I have five subsets of each chapter. So you can usually get five sections in one chapter. And so then what does that look like? And then another thing that I have done, I don't do it every book, but I have done it, is I just get out a three-ring binder, and I put each chapter on a tab. And then when I read something in the Wall Street Journal that I'm not ready to write about right now, but I know it's going to be key when I write that next chapter, I just open the three-ring binder, stick it in, close it up, and then it's ready when I get there. So I write the chapters in sequence. And I then go back to whatever the outline was and whatever articles I have, or if I make notes, be sure to read this, be sure to order that book, then it's all there together. Nice. I like the 10-chapter format, but I hadn't heard about the five subsections in each chapter, so that, that's new to me. I love that. That makes it even easier, because I tell people that they can write their book literally in three or four months if they just write... 250 or 500 words a day, which is really no big deal. It's like a blog post. Mm -hmm. And right. if you have five sub-chapters mm -hmm. in a chapter, that's really 
no much not much longer than a blog post. Well, you're right, Dan, and it makes it much more manageable because if you said I have to sit down and today and write a chapter, you're going to find a hundred other things. You you know, oh, maybe I need to go get the oil change in my car instead of <laughs> writing this chapter. But if you say I'm going to write 250 words today, and then you just go do it. It's so much more manageable, and then you get a feeling of accomplishment, and then you start thinking about the next section. But, you know, what would not work for me and what I don't recommend for others is just sit down and freelance, you know, just start writing, and, because it won't be organized for your reader. You have to keep your reader in mind and be considerate of your reader. Good point, good point. Um, how do you decide the subject of your book? You're, you're, you have seven or eight uh, now. Do you think about new business prospects or new trends to go after or which comes first the chicken or the egg well i decide so beginning of 2019 what work do i want to do going forward in the next few years and what i want to do is more mergers and acquisitions ceo selection working with boards and helping everybody with strategy so what does that book have to look like that i haven't already written and so that it has to do the piece that's missing of that puzzle is the board, what does the board mindset need to look like? So Constance and I talked about what the merger mindset needs to look like. So if you are a board of directors, what does your mindset have to look like when you're doing an M&A deal or when you're doing day-to-day -day governing of the company? How do you do your research? I do it in all different ways. That you know, Once you've had a PhD, you know how to do research. <laughs> <laughs> For those people who are listening who don't have a PhD, <laughs> can you boil down eight years' worth of well, <laughs> work I, into I do, two minutes? <laughs> I do most of my research online, and you can usually just Google a topic and find out what you want to know about that. And then if you see a book, then I order it off Amazon. So I don't even need to leave my house very often. I mean, back in the olden days when I was doing my PhD... I was getting ready to send flowers to the research librarian at the graduate school where I was teaching because they had to go find the books for you and they were and I would my original research was on the Vietnam prisoners of war and how they came out resilient as opposed to other POW situations when people in captivity had lots of post traumatic stress disorder so I was looking at uh, historical books then and they were very hard to find so I do recommend, if you're going to do anything that demands historical research, that you butter up the local research librarian, wherever that is, whatever university is in your town. And you know, they love these things. I would go in, and at the time I was teaching at a university, and I'd say, they'd say, what do you want now, Linda? <laughs> I said, okay, I've got to find out, and I'd have my question. And they just salivate over that because they're librarians and they love figuring out puzzles and coming back and come back the next week you need to read these three books and they would give me my assignment of how to do it but you know since then I read the Wall Street Journal every day and if you're going to write a business book you just have to know what's in that Wall Street Journal every day and I look for not just the business stories but the other stories so one of the ways that I write about things is I use a non-business example to illustrate whatever point that I'm trying to make. For example, one of the interesting things I read is that in, in Germany, the deer were separated by the Berlin Wall for so many years that some descendants of the deer that were on either side will not cross that border. Hmm. And I, so I said, use that as a metaphor of how often are we accepting the status quo and what somebody 
prior to us in the organization did, and we won't step across a border, either one. So that just sort of livens up my writing. I, I love humor, so I try to put funny stories in when I can find them. And I think this makes the, the writing more engaging, and then it makes people want to meet you because they know you're engaging. Fantastic. What tips would you give our listeners on how to write a book faster or better? Or what did you learn along the way that uh, you wish you knew now that you didn't know then when you first started writing your first book? Well, I say only somewhat facetiously (laughs) that my muse lives off the uh, Fripp Island in South Carolina. So I found this place in South Carolina that's fairly secluded, and I go there and I write. And so when I book a week there or even several days there, I am going there to write, and so my brain knows that every day as soon as I get up until lunchtime, I write, and I can knock out a lot in that. I've talked to other people that said I go to Barcelona to write. Um, They have some place that they go. For other people, they can't travel. They can't get away from home, but they say my writing does. So maybe it's a different part of your house even from where you normally do your work. Uh, but there, there needs to be a physical place where you feel creative. For me, it's looking out the window and seeing the ocean and watching the dolphins. That stimulates my creativity. For other people, it's maybe going to Colorado and looking at the snow-capped mountains that helps them. But you just have to figure out where that place is and then make a deal with yourself that if you treat yourself to a visit to that place, you've got to write. Mm-hmm. It's not a vacation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'll write after I go swimming. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You mentioned that you've been published by traditional publishers as opposed to self-publishing, and I know people listening uh, to this podcast will do both. How did you find a publisher? Did you need an agent first? or what, Tell me about that process. Well, the f- and, w- and what is it like today? Because I know publishing has changed radically in even just 10 years. Well, the first time, the first book I wrote after I left the firm was self-published. And what I learned was that by the time you self-publish a book, you have invested thousands of dollars because you've got to hire somebody to do your cover, to set up the book, to do the editing for you, to do all of these things. And I think that book cost me $15,000. Now, you've got to sell a lot of books to recover $15,000. And, you know, I used to babysit for 50 cents an hour, and I think I made more babysitting than I did on that book. And then you get the books delivered to your basement, and Amazon sends you something that says, send us two books as they need them. Well, that's painful. So then you have to drop everything, get the books ready, and send them to Amazon on a regular basis to get them out. So I decided, this is too labor-intensive. So the next time I was in Alan Weiss's community, and I worked with his agents, and I got an agent for landing in the executive chair. Now, uh, he got paid for being my agent, and I think I got $1,000 that time, but it wasn't much. Career Press did that book. The next time, uh, my agent didn't think that he could help me with it, so I went back to the publisher, and I said, do you want to do this next book? And they said, yeah, but, you know, we've changed things, and you're going to have to buy a, a X number of books. I don't remember how many it was. And that's very common today. It's very common. And, and that had changed between... that second book I wrote and the third book I wrote and then the next uh, the next time I wrote a book I couldn't get an agent to do it so I went to Business Expert Press myself and got it 
And I should tell your listeners that when you're a member of Alan Weiss's community and you mention that in your proposal or you mention it to agents, that it really does put you at the front of the line. And when you can get other people who have published in this community to do a recommendation to their editor or to their acquisitions person at whatever the um, the commercially published place is, then that works. Now, Constance Derricks, who wrote Merger Mindset with me, had just published High Stakes Leadership. And it was doing very well. She hired some marketing people to help her with it, and she was getting a lot of attention. And I said, Constance, we have got to get this proposal in before you have too many years of book sales because they work against you if you don't have high sales. They, the publisher wants you to sell 10,000 books. <laughs> so if you don't reach that threshold in a period of time that they think is reasonable, your chances of getting another book with that publisher go way down. Or they say you have to buy so many thousand. So I said, two things we've got to do, Constance. We have got to get our proposal in immediately. And she was sort of basking in the the glow of, of having a new book out. And the last thing she wanted to do was write another proposal. Well, she wanted to get the other book sold. I said, no, we got to move. So we did that. And I said, the other thing is, Constance, you've got to be first author on this because you have the relationship with the publisher. I don't. And so they publish it. We're very happy with it. And as I said, it's just out. Uh, we And we are working on a proposal for the next one. So... Those are just a few things that I learned along the way in terms of working with a commercial publisher. And the hardest thing you're going to do is get an agent. And then the next hardest thing you're going to do is get a publisher. Writing the book is easy after all that. (laughs) You mentioned that this book is being published. Uh, I don't know if it's too soon to say, but how have you invigorated sales? Because for your other books, you wanted to give away and get the business. This book, it sounds like you actually want to make a significant number of sales so your publisher is happy. What are you doing to sell the book one by one? Well, I we hired Lisa Larder's group to help us with this, and they are excellent at a book launch. And uh, Constance had worked with another firm before, plus Lisa, Larder, Lisa Larder's group, to help her with the book launch. And she was very happy with them. She said, we really need to work with Lisa. Well, her team was so good at the pre-sales, which I had never thought about pre-sales. And with my other books, nobody talked to me about pre-sales. It was just, uh, you know, PR in general, but not pre-sales. Well, Lisa's team got us up to number one on Amazon in our category. And we stayed at number one for a period of time. Well, that's good PR right there to Mm -hmm. to be able to put on LinkedIn or to put on Facebook or to put on any sort of uh, social media that we are a number one bestseller. And so you want to ride that horse in the direction it's going for as long as you can. Yeah, that's so true. When when my latest book came out, Write Your Book in a Flash, it was a number one bestseller on Amazon. And it stayed in the top 10 for about six months and stayed in the top 15 for about another six months. It's coming up on the one-year anniversary. And it's still on the front page of Amazon for its category, which means that other people are seeing it without you having to do anything. Mm -hmm. Uh, So if you keep the sales going at a consistent rate, and I can, it's different for different categories because different categories have different numbers of sales, but uh, if you can keep those sales going, Amazon will help you sell more books. Well, and the principles are the same no matter what category you're in. So, I mean, there aren't that many books coming out on mergers and acquisitions. Um, Two psychologists have never written a book together. Most books on mergers and acquisitions are written by lawyers. They're written by um, 
financial people. They're written about somebody who's doing due diligence on the technical side of an M&A deal. Yeah. So we wanted to write something about the psychological aspects. So once you distinguish yourself from the pack, uh, first of all, this is a, a very niche market of mergers and acquisitions. And then we're not going to write yet another one of here's how you do due, due diligence and find out how they make money or even what their people are like. We wrote ours about what mindset do you have to have and what do you have to think about as you're approaching the deal, in the deal, and then integrating the other company with you. So the stages of an M&A deal. Uh, so the principles are the same. You want to distinguish yourself and you want to get those pre-sales and get that because as you said, if you're on the first page of whatever the category is, your chances of selling more books go way up. Yes, and I love what you said about taking a different spin on a topic. If, they, if all the other books are written from point A and you can do it from point B, then your book really is a category of one and in, in a category that people are interested in and you're the one that stands out, so that's mm -hmm. wonderful. Uh, my final question for you, and thank you so much for being here, and I'll thank you again, um, is you know, what else should uh, a top business leader know about writing a book and how it can help propel their careers? Just do it. Everybody talks about writing a book. Now, in Alan Weiss's community, everybody has written a book. But I, I run into a lot of people who say, oh, you've written a book. I want to write a book. I said, then write it. Just do it. Don't talk about it. Just do it. Great. Well, thank you very much, Linda Henman. I uh, know that everyone listening has learned a lot. I certainly learned a lot, too. And uh, best of luck with all you do. Thank, thank you, you, Dan. Thank you for being on Top Business Leaders. Thanks for listening to Top Business Leaders, the only podcast that shows you exactly how people just like you have built their businesses by writing a book. If you'd like to write your book but don't know where to start, you can find great information